0: Sending money internationally is becoming more and more common as businesses expand around the world. I do it all the time. So let's talk about TransferWise. TransferWise lets you send money to over 70 countries for less than traditional providers. A lot less. While there are other ways to send money around the globe, they often charge you high fees or mark up your exchange rate or both. TransferWise is different. It gives you the real exchange rate and charges a really low fee which begs the question, how can TransferWise be so much cheaper than alternative options? Let's break it down. When it comes to banks, for example, international transfers are not the core part of their business, so they haven't innovated them in decades. When you send money abroad with a bank, they charge you a lot because they're using outdated systems. TransferWise is different, They've reimagined international payments with smart technology. No overhead, no markup, just smart, motivated people dedicated to making it cheaper and faster to send money abroad. It's like how new websites make it cheaper and faster to book plane tickets. TransferWise does the same, but for your money to travel. And TransferWise has borderless accounts that let you hold over 40 currencies at once and convert between them whenever you like. And you can get paid without receiving fees. Don't take my word for it, though. TransferWise has 3 million happy customers that get great rates every time they send money. And you can test it out for free at transferwise.com slash yoga or download the app. Again, that's transferwise.com slash yoga. Hi, and welcome to another episode of From the Heart Conversations with Yoga Girl. I am not only excited, but so very honored to introduce this week's guest on the show. Here to talk to us about the very important, but also sensitive topic of cultural appropriation, Susana Barkataki. Susana is a teacher, inclusivity promoter, and yoga culture advocate with an honors degree from Berkeley and a master's in education. She's also a master yoga teacher, deeply immersed in the work of decolonizing and on our yoga practice to inspire deep healing both socially and personally warm welcome to the show susana
1: hi thank you so much for having me i'm really honored to be here
0: how how was that introduction? Did I cover everything? You have a, a really impressive resume. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think you you got the most important parts. So I always re- realize I forget to say that I'm a mom. Right, like as a mom yourself, you know, this is probably one of our hugest life accomplishments is that I'm raising a little Buddha baby boy.
0: <laughs> oh my god, that should be at the top of the list. That's the that's the that's the biggest thing by far. Beautiful. So the name of this show is From the Heart. So before we dive into the the topic of the week, um, how are you speaking from the heart right now?
1: Mm, Speaking from the heart right now, I am so good. I had some time today to practice, to get on my mat and to meditate. And um, just I'm really, really nourished and filled up and feeling very present and blessed.
0: Oh, how beautiful, how beautiful. Yeah. Um, me speaking from the heart, I have to be super honest. I'm a little nervous to have this conversation. Yeah. Um, and I actually, I I don't think I would be uh, if it wasn't the, that it's this topic specifically has been such a, um, I don't want to say hot potato, but it's been a very, mm. very current topic in my, I think in conversation amongst my friends and in our studio here where I live in Aruba, but also in the online world. And we all know how conversations that take place only in the online world sometimes tend to get very heated. Um yeah. and I have been immersed or kind of hosting this this very heated discussion in my social media pages. And right before we came on, you know, I've been doing research on this topic for a really long time. I've been taking questions for a long time. Um I was kind of laying out, you know the the plan for this conversation. And I realized my heart was beating fast because I'm really scared I'm going to say the wrong thing. And yeah. I want to yeah. just start off saying that that I'm nervous to have this conversation because I'm scared to have the say the wrong thing or that I'm going to say something that doesn't sit right or that offends someone. But I also realize that the fact that I uh, sit with some of that fear is is why we're not having these conversations enough. So it's a yeah. I think it's a good thing that I'm experiencing that and and you know that we're here together and I'm really grateful that you're joining me for this and to educate not just me, but, um, the entire community. So thank you.
1: Yeah. And I just want to speak to that for a second, because one of my friends, um, Theo Drake, who's also a a Yogi says, if you step into a little bit of discomfort, sometimes that allows me to step into a little bit more ease and I'm paraphrasing him, but essentially sometimes it does take like, Someone else kind of opening up to a little fear, a little, oh, I might do this wrong. Um, For those of us who've been living in, oh, my goodness, we're so, this is just so not okay, right? Um, It allows us a little bit more spaciousness and a little bit more room to move. Um, And I also want to say, you know, I'm not here to say you or anyone else is wrong or to shame anyone about practicing yoga or teaching yoga, um, really I'm here to have a conversation and I know you are too and to connect heart to heart as we explore this together and to share from my experience and my perspective, um, culture, history, all of that, um, but to, to be also engaging in a yogic way and that is for me about discussion and connection and open heartedness and not debate or shutting people down or shaming them
0: yes yes thank you for for sharing that and that for me is i i love the podcast as a medium because it it allows us to be really present and listen it's it's i find it impossible to to listen to a podcast and do anything else at the same time uh it it really requires us to be really here when we're listening and also when we're engaged in conversation so um i try to sort of shift this conversation toward the medium of of online articles and things we can read and really immerse ourselves in and then conversation like this just because it's easier to digest without the the drama that comes along with the social media of you know he said she said and 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 everything that that comes on along with that so it's an important conversation and I think it's good that we have it in in many different ways, and the podcast is a is a great way to begin. So, just to, to give our listeners a little bit more context, do you want to share a little bit about your history um, and why you are the right person to speak to on this topic right now?
1: <laughs> Hopefully, <Yeah. laughs> absolutely. So, um, so I first should say, of course, I um, I. Don't speak for all Indians. I just speak for myself. And so, um, so I I think that's really important to name. And I am, I have a unique experience of being essentially born of colonization, right? My mother is British. My father is Indian. I was born in India. I mean, sorry, in England. Um, and then while we were growing up, you know, my brother and I in our early years in England, there was all of this violence in England against Uh, mixed race families, Indian, Pakistani families. And so we sort of came into being. I came into being in the heart of what happens after a country has colonized another country. And then those people are living back in that heartland, you know, in England. And essentially we were, we were pushed out. There were fire bombings of mixed race families. It was a really terrifying time. And it was something where, you know, like, as we said, as parents, like what I want most in the world is to keep my child safe and, um, and to make sure he lives. And so my parents felt the same way and they thought we have to get out of here. We can't, you know, bring our kids up in a place that's so intolerant of who they are, you know, where people said, oh, they're half breeds, um, that they would have to adopt because, you know, we, we would be mixed and that, that was an aberration. And so they left and they moved to the United States. And that's where How I old were up. you at the time? I was five. So I was five. quite young, which is why I don't have an English accent. Mm. And um, I got rid of that because <clears throat> people made fun of me for it. And then I became, mm. it was like this whole new thing, right? And I share this background because, because I think it's really um, actually a metaphor for the story of what's happened to yoga, it is when I was living in a suburb of Los Angeles, we happened to move, we moved there because my parents thought it would be diverse and accepting and very welcoming. And we grew up on a block where there were all, um, there were mostly white boys. And we would play, you know, typical games, cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians, um, G.I. Joe's. And what I noticed is my brother and I were always the bad guys. We were always the ones getting shot, getting killed, getting, you know, losing. And I was laying there one day with my face like pushed into the concrete with the sun burning above and smelling the the asphalt as it was kind of melting under me. And one of the boys, I don't know which one, said, go home, terrorist. And it was no longer a game. It was like he was saying it to me. And I got up. And I fought back physically. I learned how to fight, you know, because I had to. But even though I was fighting on the outside, on the inside, those messages were going in. And I felt like I didn't belong and that, that this wasn't my home, the U.S. And England wasn't and India wasn't. I didn't know it very well. So I just felt so profoundly alone and disconnected and um, and just worthless really. And I think that story is actually the story of what's happened to so many of us and to to yoga today, right? It's been taken and then taken out of context, used more as a tool for happiness or peace or or some kind of like personal gain and then um and disconnected from its which is what, what had happened to me, you know? That so that's is a, a little bit of heartbreaking a story. Yeah. yeah,
0: no, but it, 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 it touches me deeply for, uh, for someone who is really new to this topic or new to this subject, because there's, uh, I think that was a, a great portion of why this became a, not just a, a conversation or, you know, it became more of a debate or very heated is that it was such a surprise to many Westerners mm. uh, to hear people from Indian or Hindu descent uh, say that teaching yoga or practicing yoga in this specific way is cultural appropriation. And for a lot mm. of people in the West, yoga is this thing that's very dear to their heart, meet, personally, you know, me included, I'm, I'm Swedish, born and raised, white. I've uh, been practicing yoga half my life, teaching for a decade. It's very personal to me. And mm-hmm. the way things go is if, if someone challenges something that we hold dear, um, you know, there is not a lot of listening happening. And what I realized was that this is just, um, people are very ignorant to this, to this fact. And don't even know what cultural appropriation means or where the line draws between cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation. So for someone who's brand new to this, who might be listening right now, really wondering, what am I doing something wrong? Wanting to learn, what is cultural appropriation? Just down to the basics. Yeah,
1: Yeah, that is a great question. So essentially, cultural appropriation is taking something from another culture that um, that we don't have an immediate connection to and then using it for one's own gain without acknowledging where it came from or the people that that impacts. Right. And so for me, this is so connected to colonization. Right. It's so obvious. Like the British went to India to colonize and to get raw materials, labor, um, all the, like the crown jewels that are still in, in England, um, that are Indian, right? They're Indian jewels. But it's obvious we can say, oh, they took that. They exploited that. They, they, um, they took that for their own use. And, you know, when I say they, I'm also British, right? So I speak from both sides. I speak from, from both perspectives. And, um, and it's natural because we all want beautiful things. We all want, um, things for ourselves. But when, um, now, when we take yoga, it's like we're, we're using it like it's something to own or something to, um, to take and then call our own without acknowledging where it came from, um, the context of its practice, the roots, and then often, you know, really taking it out of context or, or putting it into, um, into places where it's actually counter to what yoga stands for. And of course we do this, right? Of course we do this because, you know, I studied philosophy, um, Western philosophy, and I think a lot about why things happen and why we relate the way we relate. And during the Enlightenment, which is, you know, around the 16th century, which is when um, the British went in, the Royal British East India Company went into India, Rene Descartes, this philosopher, said, I think, therefore, I am. And with those words, he named a radical shift in thinking that has impacted all of us, especially in the Western world since then, which is the separation between us and what we observe, between the mind and the body, between the spirit and the soul, right? And because of this training and separation that we're just all steeped in, we think that we can own yoga. We, We relate to it as something to exploit. And so that is what cultural appropriation is—is is, is coming from that perspective of, oh, because it's benefited me, um, it's mine, and I can do with it what what I will without considering the impacts I have on others.
0: Because I think this how this gets challenging for people in the West really to to grasp. And f- from my personal journey in this, my first uh, real big moment of enlightenment, I had never heard the words cultural appropriation spoken before. Mm. And when I was a, a teenager, 18, 19, I had just left Sweden. I was living in Costa Rica at the time. I had just found yoga and meditation and I was immersing myself in all these new things, this new way of life that were all very beneficial for me. Uh, but I didn't have the context of... Uh, big picture, you know, where did these practices come from? But I was kind of like a little sponge soaking up things left and right that I felt uh, were benefiting me on my own journey. And I got into the habit of using bindis uh, together with my mm. best friend and I didn't know what they meant and they weren't the traditional, um, traditional bindi, but anything sparkly, like a little gem, I would put it on my third eye because I had read about the third eye and third eye meditations and tapping into your intu- intuition and chakras and this and that. And I did that for a long time. I wasn't on the internet. I wasn't a public person. I was mm. living in a small village in Costa Rica, <laughs> seeing very few people. Um, and no one ever, you know, never heard anything spoken about it. And then uh, a, a couple of years later, my best friend who I lived there with passed away. And mm. I got sort of back into the habit of putting a little sparkly gem in my on my mm. forehead because it reminded me of her and of our time being so young you know, finding yoga together and meditating together, and all of this. And then I had, uh, I posted a photo. I can't remember what what the context was. And someone wrote me and said, "Cannot believe you're being so disrespectful to yeah. to Indian culture. Remove that thing from your forehead. This is cultural appropriation. Shame on you." Yeah. And I had no idea what it meant. I had, I, 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 I couldn't understand at all the concept of you know, this thing, it's very personal to me. This has nothing to do with you or with anybody else. This is my practice. This is my thing that I do. And I was, of course, very offended that someone would challenge me because, you know, with this emotional attachment that I had to this, to this, you know, (laughs) which, of course, I can sort of laugh at it now, now that I I know better. But it took some time for me to actually acknowledge um, that what I was doing was offensive. And, It didn't take just one person telling me. It took a few people telling me before I sat down and started Googling the term cultural appropriation and what it meant. And then also came about the significance of the Bindi and the history of the Bindi and how it's a very, you know, part of a very religious practice that isn't mine, a culture that isn't mine. And with time, I stopped using it. But Mm -hmm. I can definitely see that those first moments or those first, because I, I, I wore one, you know, on and off for for years that if I didn't have that moment of enlightenment, I might be sitting here with one today thinking that, oh, but this doesn't affect anybody else at all. So I'm, I'm wondering how a lot of people have been asking, where does the line go between the looking of this is me and mine Mm. and relating that to yoga as well, because I was able to see that, oh, you know, this you know, it's, it was an easy thing for me to let go of that once I realized that that was offensive. Something like the yoga practice, uh, even more personal, even more intimate to so many people, many people that might not even know very much about the origin of the practice. How can we practice in a respectful way or make sure that what we're doing is appreciating culture and not appropriating it?
1: I think that's such a wonderful question, right? And even just beginning there like asking that that question is a great place for everyone to start and I just also want to mention it just started thundering here I, I'm in Orlando Florida and we get these periodic you know half-hour thunderstorms that come through so if you hear some crunching in the background and um, grumbling it's it's the thunder clouds in the distance oh wow so um yeah <laughs> a dramatic backdrop for
0: dramatic backdrop yes <laughs> <laughs>
1: um so you know, I can only speak from my own experience with this, right? And and I truly believe that there isn't there isn't yoga came to us and it came through, right? It didn't come from someone, but it came through and it was brought to this, this country and, you know, Europe and all sorts of different places all over the world by people. But yoga itself has a, a consciousness or an entity. And and what it means, right, yoga is, is to yoke, to unite. And so if we are able to get open and to listen and to ask what I'm doing, is it creating more union or is it creating more separation? Then that is a really good place to start. Um, because we can befriend our own practice and listen to that consciousness of yoga to inform us with our own integrity with it. And to, and to begin by, you know, like you said, asking the questions, is what I'm doing creating more unity or is it creating more separation? And sometimes we'll need to learn, like you Googled, right? And learn about the roots of a practice and listen to what other people and listen to how it makes them feel as we're coming into an answer to that. Because, you know, I I do have to mention, even though many of your listeners may not be aware of this, and and I think it's important to know is that, um, unfortunately, yoga can be used as a tool of fascism as well. And, And in India right now, there is a big movement afoot, use yoga to exclude especially religious minorities um, like Muslims or Jains or other other religions and to say that to do yoga you have to be Hindu and um, or that doing yoga makes you Hindu and I personally think that isn't what yoga is about either and yoga is about union and and not creating separation and so um so it's We can't necessarily turn to an authority outside of ourselves. Um, We have to be in this process and and journey of inquiry. And that is our yoga, this, this questioning.
0: You are listening to From the Heart, Conversations with Yoga Girl. So many people ask me how I manage to get things done in a day. Simply put, the answer is hard work, dedication, and coffee. Four Sigmatic mushroom coffee powers me through everything that comes my way in a day, whether it's writing, taking meetings, walking the dogs, or just being a mom to Lea Luna. Yeah, you heard that right. Four Sigmatic puts mushrooms in their coffee to create a surprisingly delicious super drink that has some really great health benefits. With powerful antioxidants and immune boosting properties, Four Sigmatic's plans keeps you on track for all those busy days to come. It's much less acidic than regular coffee, so no jitters at all. Plus, it will boost your brain activity, decrease stress and improve your memory, concentration and alertness. And of course, it tastes great. You will only find the highest quality mushrooms and other superfoods in Four Sigmatic blends. They make sure their recipes are free from pesticides, mycotoxins, and other harmful chemicals. Offering everything from mushroom coffees, elixirs, hot cacao, and matches, my favorite Four Sigmatic product right now is the Mushroom Mocha Mix Delight with shaga and cacao. This brew is organic, vegan, and paleo. Far from being a sugar-loaded coffee shop drink, it's the perfect drink for any time of day. I usually drink it in the morning, of course, or in the afternoon to kiss that 3 p.m. slump goodbye discover the everyday magic of mushrooms for yourself with this awesome deal for from the heart listeners only right now when you head to foursigmatic.com slash yoga girl you'll get 15% off of your entire order that's 15% off of any order placed on four sigmatics website but you have to use the special url foursigmatic.com slash yoga girl that's spelled f-o-u-r-s-i-g-m-a-t-i-c dot com slash yoga girl The world is changing now more than ever. We all need more than one source of income, but not everyone wants to quit their jobs and become a startup founder. That's what Side Hustle School is all about. It's a short daily podcast, seven days a week, that tells stories of ordinary people making extra money without quitting their jobs. The host, Chris Gillabo, also has an intriguing new book out there this month called The Money Tree. It's an engaging story of how you have the power to create your own financial destiny, something that's especially important in this time of uncertainty. Get your copy of The Money Tree today from any bookstore or online retailer. Learn more at moneytreebook.com and listen to Side Hustle School wherever you get your podcasts. So for someone who, who's, who might be an avid practitioner or a teacher or even someone like myself who makes a living from this practice teaching yoga, mm. if my practice and my teaching makes me feel more at peace and more in union with myself, with my heart, with my students, with my local community, does that excuse doing anything within the realms of yoga?
1: <laughs> I'm glad you asked that. Um- no, it doesn't. It doesn't. And and I think that a huge part of, you know, when I look at and explore what yoga is, is besides honoring the roots of the practice, it invites us to practice um, svadhyaya, right? Self-inquiry and looking at position and privilege and power. And then using that to make others feel welcome and lift others up. Because yoga, I mean, it's been in the West, it's been such an exclusionary practice, And so even someone like me, right? Like I'm, um, or my aunts and uncles, like my aunt actually said to me uh, uh, the other day, she's like, I want to practice yoga. She's, you know, Indian. She wears a Bindi. Um, she wears a Sari every day. She said, I want to go and practice yoga, you know, yoga, but I don't feel like I belong in the studio. Mm -hmm. And I thought, Oh, you know, if my aunt from Assam, you know, who's like from this matriarchal practice where yoga and Ayurveda have been practiced for centuries is saying, I don't belong, we have a real problem. And I think a lot of people have spoken about that. Mm-hmm. Um there's body issue, you know, people who feel not included because they don't feel like their body type is welcome, definitely around race, culture. Um and so I think every one of us, including, especially like I also have a a yoga business and I teach yoga teacher trainings and other courses. We have a responsibility to look at who is not there, who isn't in our classes, who isn't showing up to our retreats, who isn't in our studios, and then do what we can with the power and the position we have to bring other folks in, right? Or... Maybe it's not bringing other folks into our world, but going into theirs and listening to what they need and sharing these tools that have helped us with others. Because in addition to Svadhyaya, it's like pairing self-study with seva, with self-service, which is something I know you care about so much. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what you think about that question of, you know, can we kind of be let off the hook if if it's bringing us in our community peace?
0: Yes, yes, and as someone who has sort of been, uh, I, I have a big aversion towards social media. Strangely, uh, I have this sort of hate love <laughs> relationship. I think if I, a part of me would love to 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 live in in more peace. Sometimes I have to ask myself, does this bring more peace into my life? And sometimes the answer mm-hmm. is no. Um, but I also feel really purposeful in my work and I uh, want to continue my work. And I know that social media is a way to further that and also help educate and help um, bring awareness to things that I find important and, and ways to, to be of service. Um, I have had a lot of personal, really serious introspection Through this. And the interesting thing, there's been a lot of things that have clicked for me just the past couple of days. The conversation that was sparked in social media actually came from uh, I shared a a fairly public post um, when Nia Wilson was, was murdered. Um, A little while ago, Mm. I have been sitting with a question myself of why don't we have more people of color in our retreats and in our trainings? Mm. And at the studio, the local community here in Aruba, we don't really think about that a lot because we have 83 nationalities on the island. There's no way to tell what an Aruban person looks like. I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's all very mixed, and uh, we have we have more people of color at the studio from the local community than, than than white practitioners. But in our actual retreats and trainings, which of course are the the costlier programs that we have and the the more immersive things, very 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 few. And I have been pondering this. We've had you know meetings about this at the studio. We've been going back and forth. How can we how can we go about this and make sure that th- we are being more inclusive? And what I came back to again and again is that I was scared to ask the question publicly because I was scared that, that I was unintentionally doing something racist. Is there mm. something that I am doing wrong? Is there something of how a practice that we have, how I'm p- portraying my teaching, how uh, I was scared that the answer would be something that I didn't want to hear. So I didn't have the conversation publicly. I didn't open up and say, hey, I, I'm, I need to work on something here. Can anybody, you know, Help me, give me some advice. I just I kept it really quiet, and then I, I opened up about that, which for me was uh, was a fairly scary thing to do. I think as a as a white woman, it is it can be a really intimidating thing to do to get into any conversation about race, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is a reason a lot of white white women specifically, you know, we stay very privileged and sort of comfortable in our own corners. Um, isn't that that what is that quote that it's the uh, the ultimate privilege when we don't even have to <laughs> think about our privilege because we're so privileged. Right. It doesn't even come up. Um, but I brought that up and I shared a, a post on it. And then through that was connected through to some really amazing uh, women of color, one of, one of whom is uh, Rachel Cargill, who does an amazing mm. work within black feminism and supporting how white women can support women of, of color all over. Mm. So we decided to do a podcast together and then I shared that. And then magically, which then didn't feel like magic to me because it came with a lot of um, challenge. Uh, Mm. The question was brought up, but wait, you're gonna have this conversation about feminism and white feminism or black feminism and supporting women of color. Where are the Indian people in your community? Mm. Uh, You are culturally appropriating yoga by teaching it the way you do, by having your studio in the location that it is, by being a white woman teaching yoga. Uh, and it wasn't a question I was prepared for. I was so focused on, <laughs> on 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 feminism and this specific topic that we had, and bringing people of color into our retreats. And then I was sort of sidelined with this. Wait, have I been so completely ignorant uh, that I'm not honoring the roots of this practice that completely envelops my entire life uh, in in the right way? And I and I can you know really humbly say right now also to everyone who's listening this was not an easy thing for me to be faced with, mm. in, in the way that it came about um, at all because it came from a place where yeah there was there was so much truth in that absolutely there how how am I supporting the Indian community here in Aruba because there is a fairly sizable Indian community here mm. um, not at all the answer to that question is is not at all and, mm. and I've had my focus on many different. In other other ways, other places, and have not been inclusive enough, or educational enough, or respectful enough uh, in what I share in social media and, and websites and things like that. So it's been a, a big, uh, yeah. It, it, I I find myself questioning my my entire work, mm. I guess, over the past couple of weeks, and have now landed in this place of uh, oh, what a beautiful thing. <laughs> What a beautiful thing to have kind of your roots shaken up um, so that I can really scale things back and get to the heart of why I do what I do. And if I need to change something, beautiful, great, you know, I can't do that work before I'm faced with that work. So what initially felt like almost like an attack or drama, Mm. uh, now it just has settled in me as, as, as gratitude and I'm just listening now. I don't know if I'm yeah. rambling or if I'm making sense. <laughs> no, it you. makes a
1: lot of sense. And, and, you know, I so appreciate you opening to this because, as you mentioned, like so many people can sit in that place of privilege and never engage. And, you, you know, it's like privilege allows. And, and I do think, actually, in this day and age, that privilege has an expiration date, and, you know, you could have postponed it, right? But instead you went, you turned into it and you opened it up and, um, and it is really uncomfortable and it is really painful because this, the history of what's happened is, is uncomfortable and painful. You know, when I went to India, I walked in Shimla, which is this beautiful village um, up in the foothills of the Himalayas and I met villagers who said, you know, when the British were here, they didn't let us walk on these streets, like on the main thoroughfare. And then other villagers who said, and we couldn't practice yoga or Ayurveda, the healing science, it's a sister science to yoga. If we did, we, we would be punished. If we practiced, we were punished. Because there was an intentional breaking of that lineage of the practice that gave people their medicine, their resilience. Right. Their mind, body, spirit, strength. And, and so, so much so that even today, like folks like me, you know, who grew up in the diaspora, like I grew up in England and in the U.S., that lineage is something that I have to fight to understand and to reclaim. And of course, yes, it's in me. Right. And it's in my blood and my bones and my, my ancestral knowing and that's coming through me. And it's it's not an easy thing when we've had like a context of separation and disunity and disconnection, right? We all have that that separation from ourselves, from each other, and we've lost the natural experience of unity that yoga says is our birthright and that it it gives to us, you know, and um, and can teach us. And I really believe with yoga we get a taste of that world of unity once more and that it's everyone's to connect with and that no one needs be or should be excluded or left out, right? And that if we're practicing this kind of authentic speaking, listening, like you said, really listening, then um, yoga will speak to us and the yoga of inclusivity, the yoga of diversity, of honoring. Um, and so I just, I'm grateful that you're, you're doing this and hope that your many other people who are listening will take this as a jumping off point, you know, like, if, and I really want to speak to this for a second, like, if someone's listening, is is like, mm, she's just saying only Indians can do yoga, right? Or, um, where I don't get like, why does she keep talking about the past? Like it's past. It's not now that my, my request is really to, to ask you, like, can you feel the humanity? like the shared humanity, my pain, the suffering, and connect to that. And then also what would it mean for your worldview or your life if this were true, right? If there was so much more that we needed to look at and explore in yoga than what we've been doing in the West. Um, What would that mean? And can we open to that for a second and just kind of sit in the, wow, there's there's this possibility that we can all walk into together
0: there's there's hope there's there's definitely definitely i mean coming coming through on the other end of this uh if if there is such a thing um what a beautiful moment of unity that would be and I think I think now the um, if you go into the extremes of this, and I think that's that's a little bit what's been happening with this conversation online is that it's been hard yeah. for people to distinguish the um, the conversation from the emotion, which is right. also making a note of the fact that anyone um, anyone speaking of this from a place of anger has. An absolute right to be angry mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. How, how can we and I think um, specifically in yeah the Instagram conversation that happened uh, uh, over on my page uh, there was a lot of women from Indian descent who were very very upset as part of this conversation mm-hmm. uh, and that anger you know really translated through their words so instead of listening there were a lot of western women who just became upset at the anger and I can't listen mm-hmm. to you when you speak in that tone or uh, and you know it when to extremes on both sides. Um, do you have any advice as to, well, first off, as Westerners, how we can listen and, and sit with emotion, even if it's there, or how we can have this uh, conversation in a more accessible
1: way? Absolutely, yes. Um, I love that question. I think that, so I work all the time in, in having high-tards conversations, around issues of diversity and race and cultural difference in the yoga world, um, consulted for yoga Alliance and other places on these types of things. And so it gets heated because it's personal and, and we're invested. And so the very first thing is really to listen for, um, for what impact our words have had or an action has had, um, on someone else, and then to address the impact. So if someone is is speaking with a lot of anger, then recognizing that they're hurt, right, and addressing that hurt first, not like speaking from position, but speaking from compassion. So letting the emotion crack us open, like crack open the oh my goodness, she or he is really suffering. Like for them to say those things that that are so harsh or so angry or so. Um, maybe even cutting or hurtful, like they must really be hurting. Why are they hurting? So take it as a point of curiosity and then allow that compassion to form connection. So we're not just trying to be right or defend position, but really connect because, and I know, as you mentioned, social media is so hard because it is really almost like a debate format um, rather than connection. But I've had, some opportunities on social media as well, um, to engage these issues. And it, when I just stay present and I've listened to someone who's attacking and ask them questions about their, their pain or their fear or, um, why they're so hurt. Then usually after some time back and forth, back and forth, they're able to, to get to what's underneath the emotion, which is like real grief or sadness. And, um, and we can, we can connect person to person, you know, heart to heart and human to human. So I think practicing the yogic principles, right? Of ahimsa, of nonviolence, of non-harming and of satya. And then also of a paragraha, letting go, letting go of, mm. of position and just being present with another being in their moment of suffering. And I, re- I wish that. I wish there was a way to bring the format of what I know as counsel or Dharma sharing is another way I've, I've heard of it. A practice I love and have shared every week where we sit in circle and just speak from our hearts and no one answers. There's no cross talk. We just share and the most profound things come out like suffering, joys, um, and no one needs to answer anyone else. We just share and we listen and there's bonds that are formed that are, you know, they never end, those bonds. And I wish there was a way to bring that to social media because I think so much of this could be resolved if we had a forum for that kind of loving um, space of exchange.
0: It's, it's so interesting that you that you say that. We're working on bringing something similar about actually right now. <laughs> it's part of mm-hmm. the something um, we're launching soon, but uh, I have really been looking for that. Um, I, I have yet to see... Uh, A social media forum, at least with this many people that that the space that I hold has a lot of people. So I think it, of course, gets challenging, the bigger the platform is, Uh, but where there has been really constructive discussion leading to a place of peace. And usually, how social media debates go is if something is heated, people will just jump in midway, and there'll be you know personal attacks and and back and forth. And what I feel really sad about right now is that there was a, a woman who who sparked this debate um, recently with really important, uh, really important questions, really important points. Uh, and the way she came about them it just it came from this place of absolute immense anger and it was really uh, really quite intense to, uh, to be on the other end of and uh, she ended up sharing a lot of sort of um, photoshopped images of me and it was an image of me bathing in money and and I am a devil and um, sort of the, the consensus, uh, after that, she was sharing that no white person should ever teach yoga. Um, we should never put our hands in prayer. We should never do this. And of course, this made other people really upset to read because that also was, of course, personal to them. So it became this sort of vortex of just crap. And in wow. the end, the, the the woman, because of the images and because of the anger, uh, I didn't do it, but she was banned from her own account. Um, because mm. it became so hateful in the end. And I was sitting with this this morning and I was like, oh, I, I, I wish there was a way I could bring her voice back without mm. the anger because I would love to have that really constructive conversation with her and listen, but it became too distracting and other people, you know, jumped into my defense and then it became this sort of, yeah, not a pleasant place to, to reside. But um, I, I, I wish there was a way to hold space and let that anger be and then separate it so that so that I can listen easier. Because I sense that in myself, when I feel attacked, I just, I shut off. If I feel personally attacked, it's uh, it, it's really hard to listen and be objective and, and hold a space for that conversation to um, to unfold. And I think social media is missing that.
1: Yeah, it's true. and And, you know, I think that sounds like, her anger was very intense, but so many of the people who are angry, their anger is righteous, right? Their anger is, um, right for them. It's their experience. It's their experience of so many moments of suffering and of feeling like they have nothing or they have access to nothing and being told that they're worthless. Like, you know, that even just my experiences are, are, imagine that like multiplied, multiplied, multiplied. And, and so they're speaking from the depths of that pain and, and they may not have, you know, all the tools or the access to, like for me, I've done a lot of meditation and meditation retreats. I've been able to utilize the tools of the practice and that has helped me come to this place of more inner reconciliation and, and inner peace. Um, also, it's my own life path being Indian and British. It's like, how can I forgive? the lines of both the colonizer and colonized within um, or forgive the colonizer and reconcile with the colonized and empower the, the, the sad or angry or fearful parts of myself without causing more suffering. Um, but there's stages of that. And, um, and so, so I think it's, it's a really complicated thing because, you're in a place where with so many people listening and talking, it's like, how can you curate on this imperfect platform a space where uh, an Indian woman is able to to be heard, right? Um, or many Indian women or Indian people um, in their pain or in their suffering and, and not be shut down by spiritual bypassing, like saying, oh, it's all light, it's all love and... Um, but instead to curate a platform where people listen and open and, um, and hold that space. Um, but it's so challenging. I hear you because, because anger is scary, especially when it's directed right at us and we, we feel attacked. But underneath that anger, I think is a lot of grief and a lot of, um, sadness, you know, and, and there's been so much harm done. So acknowledging that harm is, is a really powerful way to, to begin.
0: Can you give some, because I know people that are listening, <laughs> they would love for this to be a black or white issue, like a yes or a no, a simple, uh, a lot of the questions I got and I have received so many questions um, were, were very specific Uh, like, uh, is it cultural appropriation to play music in your yoga class? Mm -hmm. Is it cultural appropriation to uh, put your hands in prayer at the end of class? Is it, I have a a list of, I I don't even know how many things, and maybe we can get into Mm -hmm. a few of those, but uh, is there a really clear example you can share um, fairly objectively right now of cultural appropriation within the yoga world that you see often?
1: Yes. So one very clear for me example of cultural appropriation is when people do like say mantra and mimosas or yoga and beer um, because for so many Indians yoga is a spiritual practice a practice of you know coming into union with the divine and it's not something that should be paired with alcohol because. Alcohol is, um, you know, it's counter to that religious context or that spiritual context of creating more clarity, creating more union. And so any time where there's a practice that's done without understanding the roots of that practice, it has the possibility of being cultural appropriation, right? And so, um, so something like Anjali Mudra, like bringing our hands into prayer, That, I do feel like people understand the roots and they understand the context. And they are, most people, most yogis I meet, you know, all over the world where I practice, they really mean the light in me, honors and salutes, the light in you. And they share it with intensity and integrity and beauty. And so to me, that's not appropriation. However, if we're doing like mantra and, you know, chanting to the space of, divinity within ourselves or clarity or purity or abundance but we're also drinking that is appropriation because it's not actually respecting the roots of the culture and it's also feels harmful to so many people who practice yoga in a way um, where they're chanting as like as devotion i hope that's that's helpful the, yeah I mean, that, that was
0: very very clear yeah Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's
1: it is tricky, and and again, like I cannot speak for all Indians. I can't speak for um, for all people to to say like this clearly is appropriation. This isn't. But I can share my own my own experience. Um, and so, you know, the other thing is that check in of is what I'm doing creating more separation or creating more inclusion. And so, if I'm teaching like a set sequence. And I tell people, if you don't do it this way, you're doing it wrong. To me, that is also appropriating yoga because yoga is not about making someone feel bad or making someone feel lacking or um, unworthy, but of course, challenging, right? We need to push ourselves and push each other and challenge each other, but bring us to a place of inclusivity um, where everything and everyone and every experience is is welcomed and so um so i think just coming back to that second looking at the roots trying to learn and explore as much as possible and then um and then ask you know go begin from there from is this creating more connection yes yes
0: you are listening to from the heart conversations with yoga girl If you saw my day in a life YouTube video, you saw just how much fun Dennis and I have at the grocery store. Or not always. (laughs) Shopping in Aruba can be really challenging. Since we live on such a small island, finding high quality ingredients and organic fresh produce can be super hard. If you're like me and you have a hard time ensuring all the ingredients you buy are up to your standards, or if your husband just does not like grocery shopping, I recommend checking out Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest is a subscription service that makes healthy eating easy and requires basically no effort. They send one-step prep, perfectly portioned, plant-based cups of frozen organic fruits and vegetables directly to your door. You don't even have to think about making the healthy choice. It's delivered right to you. You can choose from smoothies, savory harvest bowls, overnight oats, and much more. An amazing meal or snack made from delicious whole ingredients is ready for you in as little as 30 seconds. All you have to do is add water or your favorite milk to the cup and blend, heat, or soak. Daily Harvest is the perfect thing to keep at the office or have on hand for those days when you just don't want to cook. Smoothies and Harvest bowls make a great healthy lunch or afternoon snack. Not to mention the chocolate and hazelnut protein shake is great after you finish an afternoon run or bike ride. Daily Harvest understands that we need ingredients we can trust, and these deliciously accessible organic foods from Daily Harvest are becoming my first choice any time of the day. Try them out for yourself. Go to daily-harvest.com and enter the promo code yoga girl to get three cups for free in your first box. That's promo code yoga girl for three free daily harvest cups at daily-harvest.com. Daily-harvest.com. And I think this also is, is uh, um, a way to apply it also is in terms of the tools that might accompany the practice. A lot of questions came in about that. So mala beads, for mm-hmm. instance, Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wear mala beads every day. Um, I, I have several with different intentions from different times in my life and they're very, very sacred to me. Uh, and, uh, I have, since I wear them every morning, I have the habit of when I come to my mat, I will take them off and I will lay them at the top of the of my, of my mat as, uh, as something to remind me of that intention or remind me of that anchor or, um, whatever it is I'm, that, that I'm, focusing on in that moment or that practice uh, and I'm learning now that uh, placing mala beads on the floor can be cultural appropriation is it, is it cultural appropriation and if it's done with respect in a sacred way which that has been for me it's a practice that I would absolutely be willing to change um, if, if that is the case but a lot of questions came in about that can we do anything if it's respectful in our own sense mm.
1: Right. <laughs> so I think that's, that's so important and so tricky, right? Because I can feel the reverence in, and the depth of your own practice with the Malabids that you've been working with while, while you talk. And so while that is, is very real and is very true, yes, in general, placing like a spiritual object on the floor or somewhere near our feet, um, can be, can be seen as disrespectful. And so maybe it would be like laying the beads on uh, a little vase or a little shelf or a little, um, you know, something near where you're, you're mm. practicing. Um, but also, you know, while we look back and while we learn about how these these items or sacred objects have been used, our practices are evolving. And they are changing and they are kind of weaving together to form a web that is something that we're all co-creating. And so um, and so I don't think it's so much like coming out of fear, like is what I'm doing wrong, but. Really, like you just did tuning into where is this coming from and how can I best honor my own intention and also honor this sacred tool, right? This technology that has been developed and passed down for years and years and years, thousands of years. How can I honor that um, by understanding how it was practiced and then feeling in my own body and my own experience how I wish to carry it forward? Because so much of the work that I do is around guarding against the erasure of authentic yoga, right? Um, Because the way we're heading, I think it's hopefully taking a little turn now, Um, but the way we've been heading, take us 10, 20 years into the future, yoga would have just been the same as like jazzercise or exercise. And that would be such a loss to humanity. Such a loss. Mm. Such a loss, right? And so, so... um, In what we're doing, yes, we bring our own reverence, but we look back, we lean back to the the ancestral practices and the teachings as we evolve and and practice forward.
0: And also being able to take those, um, you know, if we're making changes through educating ourselves, through learning something new, and that inspires us to make a change, um, I find in these senses it often makes that sacred act, even more sacred in the first place. So yeah. um, have, we, we used to have a, this is many years ago now, but uh, I, I had a, a little statue of a Buddha in my living room uh, and it was on the floor. And someone mm. came to our house and, and shared, oh, you know, you're not supposed to put Buddhas on the floor. That's, you know, they're supposed to be elevated. And then I did my research and I found out more about it. And now uh, I really think about that. If I see a Buddha on the floor, I elevate it or I, I, I try mm. to, educate someone kindly um and that same buddha i still have it at our house but it, it has a bigger presence now because I, f- I feel more anchored in the um in the culture that i'm appreciating by keeping a statue or a deity um in my own home so it's not just something that adorns anymore but it um, it has more intention uh, just from that action of, of elevating it i'm tapping into that culture in a more respectful way so the meaning that it represents in my life becomes greater and I can just yeah. having this conversation with you, I'm just, oh, how, how easy, how, how hard is it for me to um, place my mala beads on the little table next to my mat, for instance, or, uh, you know, there's, there's, you know, minor, minor changes I can make that might have a great impact. Uh, also educating every student that comes into the shala, how many, I mean, there's a lot of students that come through here every day. Uh, I can hold that space and further that education rather than feel um, offended or threatened you know, in in my own Mm. practice, just by remaining more open.
1: Yeah. And I want to share with you a a story, right? Because I too have these moments of like having to be kind of humble and crack myself open out of my own, um, my own patterns or expectations. So I went to India, it took me um, 26 years to save the money to go. Um, I went when I was 26 to my homeland. And and for me, I also want to mention, it wasn't like an eat, pray, love moment. It was like going home. Right. And so I bought that one-way ticket, stepped off the plane, like even though there were wild dogs and cows and rickshaws and everyone like crushing up, trying to get something, I got down on my knee and kissed the earth and mm. just felt like I am home. I am home. right? I felt this, this belonging and this connection um, that, Finally could never be taken away from me, no matter what. And, and it was amazing because it generalized to not be just in India, but everywhere. But I was living in Bihar in a um, little village where I was working at a school where children who can't afford uniforms, so they can't go to the, the government schools, they were going to school there. And I was helping teach the teachers and teaching the kids. And it was great. I, I worked and lived in a compound with a Indian sannyasi, like a yogi who had just come out of seven years of silent practice, a Buddhist, um, Tibetan Buddhist monk, a village girl, um, and then someone from Germany, you know, who was volunteering, and then myself. And so we had all these great conversations. But the Indian sannyasi would teach every day, and he invited people, you know, you had to sit at his feet, you know, lower than him, on the, he would sit up on a high chair, And learn. And I was like, I'm an American feminist. I'm not going to sit at any man's feet (laughs) and learn anything. Like, no way am I doing that. There was no way like the arrogance and, you know, I was up on my own righteousness and I held held really firm. And one day I walked by and I heard him teaching a, a village young man. And I was like struck by the power of what he was saying and and he was teaching on the Bhagavad Gita and all of a sudden i realized his teachings were free for all i just had to show respect and the formal way of showing it was to sit at his feet but truly he was teaching a teaching of no hierarchy and so i sat there and i feel like i didn't get up for months and just learned you know the the depth and the practice of the story of Arjuna and Krishna and um and coming to a sense of oneness and union that is beyond even words beyond being able to put it into words but hmm. i had to get beyond my own sense of what i thought was right you know to a deeper truth for me for me that even be able to learn that
0: what a what a teaching moment <laughs> And it's, it's beautiful when we're presented with those moments. I mean, it, it really is. And sometimes it shows up and it looks like a challenge or it looks like a, it looks like something else. I, I don't think teaching moments usually just, oh, here's a teacher. Great. Let me learn. You know, we're, we always have that moment right. of, oh, this, I have to change something now. <laughs> I have to humble myself here. I have to lower myself a little lower to the ground. Oh, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to do, but um, it's so worth it so 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 worth it always you are listening to from the heart conversations with yoga girl hiring used to be so hard trust me with a yoga studio cafe and many international businesses i've been through the process sorting through multiple job sites and stacks of resumes makes for a confusing review process but today hiring can be so easy and it can be easy to find that perfect fit for a role you only have to go to one place to get everything done ziprecruiter.com yoga ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. ZipRecruiter actually uses powerful matching technology so you can scan thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. These invitations have completely revolutionized the search. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never ever miss a great match. Let ZipRecruiter do all of this work for you. With features like these, ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. You are only clicks away from finding that perfect hire. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in all of America. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com yoga. That's ziprecruiter.com yoga. ZipRecruiter.com slash yoga. ZipRecruiter, it's the smartest way to hire. So for the many people listening now who, uh, you know, most are Westerners, many have a a daily yoga practice, many are teachers, many have businesses that relate to yoga, that make a living uh, through or from this practice in some shape or form. Um, What are some really solid pieces of advice you could give to, to every Western person listening? as to how they can continue teaching yoga, continue practicing yoga, and still deeply honor the roots of the practice. So have it be appreciation and never steer over into the place of appropriation.
1: Mm. Right. So exactly what you're saying, right? Like specifically honor the roots of the practice. So be able to cite cultural references, know like for the things that we're doing, like, if we have mala beads or we're using bells or we're um, chanting mantras, know where those came from and what they mean and commit to that personal deeper practice, right? It's a beautiful thing actually to, to then want to deepen our own practice by honoring its roots and creating a more authentic transmission because we have that personal responsibility um, so I think first honoring the roots of the practice and then second taking personal responsibility to, um, to stand up and to speak up in the face of racism or exclusion or, um, or spiritual bypassing or cultural appropriation and to really name it, but not in a way that makes someone wrong or makes someone other, but name it in a way that invites people in. To a deeper practice themselves as well. So I think in order to do that, it's honoring the roots, personal responsibility, as we talked about before, svadhyaya, the self inquiry, um, and and then practicing tapas, right? Like tapas, at the spiritual fire, um, making sure we're we're never forgetting our own sadhana, our own practice, and mm. um, and really, like burning off, for me, I, I consistently have to do a practice of burning off my own, you know insecurity or ego flip sides of the same coin where I'm getting stuck in this is mine, or this is about me. It's not. It's about this message, this practice is coming through me and for the future generations. It's, it's really I'm so minor, right? in the scope of this. and yes, it's wonderful to for us to personally benefit. And of course we will, because that is the gift of yoga, is we will all benefit from every place that it touches our lives. I mean, I think we all know that, and we have all experienced that, and that's why we love it so much, and we want to share it. Um, and it is here for us individually, and it is here for us to share. Um, so really taking the time to burn off the, the things that we know kind of are the distractions like you mentioned, the things that get in the way um, so we can be in alignment with the heart of what yoga is, which really is, is union. So coming, I'll say it again, coming back to that question, is anything that I'm practicing causing separation, right? Is anyone left out? And, and if anyone is left out, what can I do to bring them in? And so I, I want to go back to a, a concrete answer, to question about teacher trainings or like the higher priced offerings. So something that I've done, cause I also run teacher trainings is, um, offer a tiered system of payment. So, um, so folks who are folks of color or, um, queer or, um, you know, bigger bodied differently abled have they, if they choose to, they can pay in at a different level of payment than, um, than the the upper price or the highest price. And so that alone makes the training more accessible. And then the other thing that I've done is work with other organizations to um, actually fund completely people's yoga teacher training who could never afford it. And then train folks who are then going to take back the tools and the, the practice of yoga into communities that really need it, you know, communities that are experiencing a lot of trauma. Um, right here and now, like through gun violence, or poverty, things like that. And so, um, so I do think there are really concrete things that we can do. And um, that is not enough, you know, like for me to just say, Oh, I, I have a teacher training, and I'm just donating to an organization in India that supports women, which I do. Um, but I also do things locally, to bring people in locally, who wouldn't, you know, normally not have access to a couple thousand dollars, training so um so there are very concrete things that that we can do
0: there are there are and in, and in those cases say um someone listening might be practicing yoga at a studio and uh that might be engaged in cultural appropriation of some kind mm-hmm. uh, do you have any advice as to how how we can address that in a way um because i i understand um you know, be, being a studio owner or someone who isn't immersed in this topic or haven't begun the education yet, which it was very clear that a lot of people in my community were in that place, uh, yeah. having someone walk in off the street and say, "Hey, you're <laughs> culturally appropriating yoga. Stop doing this, 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 and that." Uh, chances are they're not going to respond to that very well. Um, yeah. And I, I would love to be able to leave people with some, yeah, some some good advice, so we can also help be part of the change that actually um, needs to happen in our own local communities I can share some things that we have done at the studio um, I mean've we've, we've been pr- providing yoga for people that um, that are in need of the practice in their own local community we are uh, I, f- I feel we're doing a really good job there too um, we support social workers and we work with the orphanages here and we we um, Provide free classes for a lot of people that need it. What we haven't done is focus specifically on the Indian community on the island, which is work that I've mm. started through this conversation. So I'm really excited about that, um, actually. Mm. And now looking up and seeing, oh, who is already practicing here that's part of the Indian community and how can we mm. reach more uh, and really ingrain that and have the studio be, uh, be the heart and soul. Uh, because there's not a lot of yoga here on the island it's really spread and there's a lot of tourists that come and practice but we didn't open the studio for tourists we opened it for the local community so it brings me back to my original intention as well um, but another thing that I you know was completely unaware of that I um, yeah, humbly apologize for if anyone has been here and has felt um, offended by it, we had a, a deity of 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 kali in one of our practice rooms, and someone informed me. You know, if when you're laying shavasana, you're showing your feet uh, to mm. to one of the most sacred sacred deities that we have in this practice, that is a sign of disrespect. Uh, I was unaware, and it was such an easy thing for me to 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 display that statue in a much more appropriate place and in a much more appropriate way, and also um, educate each teacher of the meaning. Why did I choose to put Kali in this place? Uh. What does she represent to the studio, to what we talk about in teacher training? Because we talk a lot about it there, but not so much in the day-to-day with every teacher that comes through the the halls here. So um, it's my job as a studio owner to educate not just myself, but... Everyone who works here and also the people that are taking part of this practice, because I am in charge of this space. I'm responsible for this space and I can control um, so much of, <laughs> of, of how we respect the practice and what happened within these walls. But my, maybe not every, um, it's not always going to be an easy change to make. Uh, and of course, this right. didn't come easy for me either. And I'm not saying we're done now. And you know, I had this podcast now, and now I'm done. I'm going to close this chapter <laughs> and move on with my life. This is the beginning of this, mm. uh, of course, like a springboard. Um, but for mm-hmm. anyone who might be listening, who might be practicing at a studio, or might, um, yeah, have noticed some of these things in other places, uh, what are some ways that they can help affect change in a really positive way?
1: Yeah, I think that's that's a wonderful perspective to go into it with, because, you know, I was recently at a studio where they had um, a deity in the bathroom and that's a really inappropriate place to have a deity, you know, even though it's a beautiful decoration, I understood they were relating to it as a decoration and not as a sacred object and a manifestation of the divine. And that was, was appropriation and was disrespectful. And so I just went up and and talked to the studio owner and said, "Oh, tell me about the statue. Where did you get it?" and listened to the story, you know, and and her passion for it and her experience, and then said, "You know, from from my perspective," and I just shared what I just shared with you, and I did it in a very um, calm and like connecting way of like, "Wow, we both really love Ganesh. And we want to honor Ganesh," and um, and so at the end of the conversation. I didn't even need to ask. It's just like, oh, I'll I'll move. I think I'm going to move it to this other place in the studio. And so I think asking people about their connection to that thing that they're doing or that thing that they have first, and then sharing, you know, oh, this is what I've heard or this is what I'm learning, or this is what my experience is can, um, can invite them to have that, like cognitive transformation, that awareness without feeling attacked. Um, and it can be especially hard, you know, if there's like people in studios who have a ton of stuff from India that they've marked up like a thousand percent and, and aren't necessarily even giving back to the community that they're buying it from, you know, so there can be many layers um, and it can cause a lot of pain or suffering or anger again. Right. Um, but, to really do the work. I this is my way to do the work to get to a point where I can connect heart to heart on what we care about. And then I share the rawness and and the pain of like wow, like I feel for the artisans that made these beautiful journals um because, you know, like my uncles do this kind of work and I know how little they got paid and and I really hope that you're you're making sure you or your company is compensating them well, you know, and and there, when I'm able to do that, I can share my pain without it, meaning that they're wrong. Um, or if they mm. take it as they're wrong, to um, to just say like, yeah, you're you're feeling some of the pain that, that I or other people I know have been feeling for some time. So let's connect on that. Um, but really to go in with compassion and with connection and to speak up, right? Like we have to do it. I think we have to do it to create this shift to a more culturally honoring yoga that we're practicing to elevate like you're doing, you know, those who have been marginalized or left out. There's no Indian yoga celebrities, like there's none. And it's not an accident. We were, it makes it more comfortable to erase the teachers from the source of the teaching because then we feel like, you know, as Westerners, we can just be here and we can be the the yoga bosses and the and the yoga teachers. But but there are amazing teachers from Indian culture who are in diaspora and who um, who are intentionally excluded from that position of authority. So bringing them in, there might be some in on your island, you know, that that you'll love to get to know and that you can invite. To teach, and and I think a lot of organizations are doing this now, um, and so slowly I think with elevating these different voices and um, and giving maybe teachers different time slots, you know, teachers who who normally wouldn't um, get like the the prime time slot because maybe folks wouldn't come to the class because they wouldn't know what they have to offer, all these little steps can build towards creating a more inclusive yoga landscape
0: definitely such 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 great and also really tangible advice which i feel um people really need um because it's true this can remain just a a discussion and it can remain a a hurt and pain and it can um yeah this could have remained just a a you know, this specific instance, the social media debate that that ended and then we carried on. Um, mm. So I'm, I'm happy that you're able to provide some actual action that people can take in their own local communities right now. Yeah. And I I feel right, right now, I feel, um, I, I think we're gonna, when we end this podcast, I'm gonna see if I can um, find the the original woman that I know it sparked a lot of drama and a lot of, of hate and anger came through that. Um, I would love to, to elevate her voice somehow because I'm, despite the anger directed at me, I'm, I'm really grateful that, that we're having this conversation and it wouldn't have happened without her. So, uh, I'm going to do some detective work and see if I can find her on the internet somehow. That's Um,
1: great. Yoga, I mean, it can either mirror and reflect the society we're in or it can transform it. And it takes us to, to transform society with these yogic practices. And there's no, you know, there's like, there's no perfect pose. We, we can't, we're not perfect vessels, right? But we do need to try. And that's what I hear you doing. And that's what I, I aspire to do. And what I hope all of the people that we get to connect with in our different communities and our overlapping communities also really, really um, try. Yes.
0: So for uh, I know this is only the beginning of the conversation, and uh, uh, for everyone listening, Susanna is gonna contribute with some really helpful, also reading material for for everyone in the community. So uh, we'll be submitting some articles that go more in depth, maybe on specific areas of this topic. Um, I also have other 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 writers from the Indian community that will um, different voices speaking on different things. So I'm really excited for this to be the springboard toward more, uh, more learning and hopefully a lot more change as well. But if you would like to take a class with you or a 200 hour or 200 hour training at susanabarkataki.com, it's that, that's the right website, right?
1: Yes. So people yes. can go to my website, which is my name. And I also have a free gift, which is a yoga manifesto, which are simple, really clear action steps to honor and live yoga right for you to, you know, put into action right away. And I'd love to hear what was evoked um, and learn more about what people are inspired about with diversity and inclusion with yoga. And so just invite people to connect with me and bring me into the conversation. Talk with me on on all the socials, which is, again, just Susanna Barkataki
0: as well absolutely absolutely i am 100% certain that uh, your social media following is going to grow by quite a bit <laughs> this has <laughs> been uh, not just really inspiring conversation but um, very uplifting uh, uplifting without uh, without skipping over the pain and the hurt that brought about the conversation in the first place so um, thank you for speaking so eloquently on on such a such a challenging top topic
1: yeah, it's my it's my life practice, and I'm very much honored to be a vessel and a vehicle. And you know, like you said at the beginning, like you felt a little nervous with having this conversation, and I do too, in the sense of just wanting to be uh, a vehicle for yoga to speak through me and to come through me. And I feel um, very honored and grateful to be able to do that and to be able to have this heart to heart conversation with you and um, with everyone who. You going to engage with it as well. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much. And, you know, Orlando is, is a very quick flight away from Aruba. (laughs) If you ever want to take a a vacation somewhere, we would love to host you at the
1: studio. It would be an honor to, to,
0: to meet in person.
1: Yeah. I would love to meet in person. That would be wonderful. And hope maybe we could do, you know, something on like a retreat or a practice on honoring authentic yoga. And yes, um, and see what, you know, if there's someone, people from your local community as well as that could come out. I would love that. It would
0: be easy absolutely. To be oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh yeah, like we said in the beginning, this is only the, the start. So it's I'm f- pretty certain we'll be having this conversation on a couch <laughs> together. <sometime Yeah>. Soon.
1: <laughs> and again, I just want to say, Rachel, you know, I so appreciate, like, when these things come up, it can be so easy as, especially with someone with privilege and as a white woman to like ignore it or sweep it under the rug or just say like those people are just angry. And thank you for um, not doing that. And I know you're not doing this to get like handouts or cookies from, from folks of color either. Um, I know you're really in this for the long haul and, and I appreciate that because, because um, so many of us have been doing the work for so long and, um, and you're doing it too, you know, and I know you're you're beginning beginning it or you're on your own journey with it, but, um, but it's just, I feel so grateful that you're willing to show up and to have this conversation and that so many of your listeners are as well, um, willing to open hearts and minds. That's what this practice is all about.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for acknowledging that. Yeah, I, I do my best. We can all only do do our best. And I can also look back to the the version of me from 10 years ago and five years ago. And, um, you know, we do the best with what we have. And I, I hope this inspires change for a lot of people listening. We have about 700,000 plus <laughs> uh, downloads a month. So um, this this might be a little tidal wave of, uh, of change coming in. Uh, coming the western yoga world's way so hoping for that
1: powerful powerful
0: yeah thank you so much susanna and for everyone listening thank you thank you thank you um would love to continue this conversation in social media uh let's keep it respectful and uh if you're a western woman or man listening uh keep listening i think that's um being on the center of the conversation for for a few weeks—that's the uh, one big piece of advice I can give—is just keep uh, keep listening, and uh, let's see let's see where this takes us. Thank you, Susanna, for coming on the show. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and a huge thank you to my beautiful guest, Susana Barkataki. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of From the Heart Conversations with Yoga Girl. You can find all of them on com, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you normally get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review while you are there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And of course, thanks to my sponsors, TransferWise, Four Sigmatic, Daily Harvest, and ZipRecruiter. Please support them the way they support this podcast. I'll see you next week.